Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Mother Jones Radio, The New York Times, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Ring of Fire, and The Young Turks. Let's take a look at a development in Washington this week where the Bush administration finally conceded what the Supreme Court said two weeks ago, and that is that the Geneva Convention Article 3 does in fact apply to detainees at Guantanamo. That long road to that admission has been detailed in the book Guantanamo and the Abuse of Presidential Power. We bring on now the author, Joseph Margulies, to tell us the story. Hi, thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for having me. You are not a disinterested participant. You actually played a key role in bringing the Bush administration to where it is today. I think it's probably fair to say I'm not a disinterested participant. It'd be hard to deny that. You uh, were involved from the very beginning with one of the first challenges to what was happening in Guantanamo. Tell us that story. Well, the first case uh, uh, about Guantanamo was a case called Rasul versus Bush, which uh, was the, uh, decided in 2004 and established the right of judicial review for the prisoners at the base. Uh, and I was lead counsel in that case. My co-counsel were the Center for Constitutional Rights lawyers uh, in New York. And a lot of what you cover in your book are the things that made us say, and I say us as the citizens of America listening to the developments as they came out, a lot of people were confused as to, well, the Geneva Convention takes place in wartime. These are wartime captures. Why doesn't the Geneva Convention apply here? Did the administration have a legal basis for the extraordinary powers they were claiming? Well, they they had a claim. I mean, they had an argument. Um, And there were bits and pieces of the argument that were, uh, you know, that sounded in or resonated from uh, traditional wartime powers. And the the gist of the argument is, on the one hand, the commander-in-chief power has, uh, the commander-in-chief has the power to incarcerate people or detain people during wartimes separate from the judicial system. That, 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 That is, you know, generally speaking, POWs, don't become civil litigants. So they, they say that when we're trying to go into court, that that's, uh, that that's a, a bastardization of the judicial power. But on the other hand, what's always been the case in the past is that while the president has the power to detain people, they've always been protected by another set of, of rights. And so they were trying to disqualify prisoners from any of those protections, but still claim all the power to do with them as they wanted. So that's what created the imbalance between power asserted and power restrained, and that's what the litigation in Rasul was all about. Well, Rasul took its time working its way through the judicial system. These things are never quick to begin with, and and one court would overturn, another court would overturn, another court. But even when we heard finally from the Supreme Court that the Guantanamo prisoners did 
deserve some protections. It took until later this week for the Bush administration to finally say out loud, okay, we agree with that. And by some, that has been posited as the pulling teeth admission we finally need. But does it mean anything? Does it mean anything in how things will change at Guantanamo? Yeah, I think the devil's in the details. I'm not, you know, uncork the champagne yet. Uh, If you read closely what the, the, the memo that was released says, it's that we will comply with something called Common Article 3, which is a provision in the Geneva Conventions that provides a baseline for uh, humanitarian treatment uh, for all prisoners in military custody. And it should be noted, they didn't say anything about prisoners in CIA custody. The memo just doesn't speak to that. But then they go on to say, but of course this doesn't require any change except in the military commissions because we've been treating prisoners humanely uh, and we've already been complying with Common Article 3, so we don't have to do anything different. So if, it, if their position is that the Supreme Court decision, which says Common Article 3 uh, does apply to the conflict with al-Qaeda, if their position is that they've been complying all along and nothing they're doing in detention and nothing they're doing in interrogation is contrary to that, then the announcement doesn't really mean anything. If they've been complying all along, they'd have a lot to account for in the person of a Sergeant Lacey who shows up in your book. Uh, the, the embodiment of what people would find to be appalling torture were the stories to get out, and they finally are. Tell us about Sergeant Lacey and some of her interrogation techniques. Well, Sergeant Lacey, um, is, we don't know her first name. Uh, she's identified in memos that were publicly disclosed in 2004 uh, because an FBI agent was at the base uh, and observed her interrogation techniques of an unknown prisoner. Uh, and he's watching, the, the FBI agent is watching through this one-way mirror, uh, and she comes, Sergeant Lacey tries to uh, block uh, the one-way mirror, and then he goes and looks through a surveillance camera, and then she tries to position herself between the prisoner and the camera. So she's doing her best to obscure the FBI agent's view, but the FBI agent is able to see her... Uh, reach in and grab the prisoner by the genitals, uh, or on another occasion uh, sees the prisoner grimace in pain, and when he asked the guard why did the prisoner grimace, the guard said that she grabbed him by the thumbs and bent his thumbs back and so on. And the FBI agent wrote a memo to his superiors complaining about the uh, aggressive interrogation techniques. And, and, And this was going on at a period when uh, we really had some of the most aggressive interrogation techniques take place at Guantanamo late 2002 through uh, the first six months of 2003 when really they just were flying blind and using extremely aggressive and, and pretty degrading techniques. And the people against whom they were using them, the numbers in your book are surprising as to how many of these folks even the military believe are actively involved in al-Qaeda or perhaps guilty of anything. According to the Pentagon, and, and again, there's never been any uh, contested hearings, so we just have to, for now, accept the truth of the Pentagon's allegations. But the Pentagon's allegations are that only 8% of the prisoners down there were fighters with al-Qaeda. Uh, that's 8%. Uh, only 5% were captured by the U.S. military. The rest were handed over to the military and represented to be bad guys by folks like the Northern Alliance or Afghan drug lords or warlords at a time when the U.S. was offering bounties for prisoners. And that's why the military has since acknowledged. And and I think, and I I give the military credit here, I think they thought that they were going to get bad guys and use Guantanamo for really um, uh, strategic interrogations. They thought that that's who they'd be getting. But they discovered very quickly that they had 
hundreds and hundreds of people who just were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they now describe them as Afghan dirt farmers. Well, as you say, that the military has acknowledged that they were not accurate in thinking everyone they had was guilty, but that argument still resonates today. We're going to hear something that uh, Senator Lindsey Graham said in Washington earlier this week. He was talking about the applicability of torture and the Bush administration tactics on those who are held for terrorist acts. The question is, does it make sense to apply a common Article 3 to a group of people who do not sign up to the convention, who show disdain for it, who would do everything in their power to not only trample the values of the Geneva Convention, but every other treaty that we've ever entered into. I agree with the President, they should be treated humanely. And I believe it is incumbent upon the uh, the Congress to rein in the application of common Article III Geneva Convention uh, to the war on terrorism within our values. So it, it sounds, at least to my ears, Joe Margulies, that there's still this assumption that when the administration chooses to administer its tactics on someone, the assumption that they are guilty still stands, although that's not been the case in Guantanamo. Right. There's a lot of assumptions embedded in Senator Graham's comments. And and, and I, I would say there's a lot that Senator Graham has done that's been really good. Senator Graham has been responsible for some good things uh, post 9-11, as far as I'm concerned. But on this one, he's off base. One assumption is they've got the right people down there, uh, that the people are, who are there are the folks that, that Guantanamo was intended for. And, and that hasn't proven correct. The second assumption is that somehow if they're bad people, we have a right to treat them uh, without the protections of, uh, that, that the law provides because they don't comply with the conventions or because uh, al-Qaeda is not a state and doesn't apply, provide the conventions. Well, you know, being in a conflict with a group that does not comply with the conventions is not new to the United States. In the Second World War, Japan didn't honor the conventions, and they treated American prisoners with a barbarity that we had never seen before. Forty percent of American prisoners in Japanese custody did not come home. The numbers were pretty much the same in Korea, where the Koreans claimed that they would abide by the conventions, claimed uh, that they would treat American prisoners, quote, humanely, but it was barbaric and it was it was uh, outrageous. Well, none of those things were thought to justify a departure on our part from a, uh, a steadfast and assiduous commitment to the conventions. It's never been thought to do that. Joe Margulies, I really want to thank you for spending some time with us. Not at all, thank you. And I wish you the best with your book, Guantanamo and the Abuse of Presidential Power. It's out now from Simon & Schuster. Could it be? Will the Bush administration, under pressure from the Supreme Court, actually make an attempt to emerge from the Middle Ages? Is the post-9-11 American Inquisition beginning to come undone? Here's the way it has been. The administration has rounded up people at various points on the globe and dumped them like animals, sometimes literally in cages, 
at the U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Top officials have insisted not only that these were terrorists, but that they were, as Donald Rumsfeld loudly proclaimed, the worst of the worst. Dick Cheney told Fox News, They are very dangerous. They're devoted to killing millions of Americans, innocent Americans, if they can. In the administration's view, these prisoners had no rights. They could be kept in a state of permanent degradation. They had no right to a lawyer or even to see the evidence against them. They could be sentenced to life in prison or even death in what could only be called a kangaroo court. The entire system was rigged. Hearsay evidence would be allowed. Witnesses could be concealed. Information obtained through abuse and even torture could be used. The Center for Constitutional Rights, in a new report documenting myriad abuses at Guantanamo, noted that a prisoner named Hajj Budella was told by military intelligence officers, You are in a place where there is no law. We are the law. Lawyers from the Center, a public interest organization in New York, have fought long and heroically to bring even the most minimal legal protections to the prisoners. Along the way, it was learned that the inmates at Guantanamo were far from the worst of the worst. Many of them, it turned out, were no danger to the United States at all. In an article in January 2005, the Wall Street Journal said, Commanders now estimate that up to 40% of the 549 current detainees probably pose no threat and possess no significant information. The center's report quotes one general as saying in the fall of 2004 that the majority of the Guantanamo detainees will either be released or transferred back to their own countries. Another general said simply, sometimes we just don't get the right folks. Not only were the legal rights of the prisoners at Guantanamo dispensed with, but their basic human rights were trampled. Prisoners were beaten, sexually humiliated, denied essential medical treatment, deprived of sleep for days and weeks at a time, held in solitary confinement for periods exceeding a year, and tortured. The courts, in large part because of the efforts of the center, have slowed the administration's descent into barbarism at Guantanamo. In June 2004, in a case brought by the center, the Supreme Court ruled that prisoners at Guantanamo had the right to challenge the legal and factual basis of their detention in U.S. courts. Two weeks ago, in another landmark ruling, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, the court declared that the Guantanamo detainees were covered by a provision of the Geneva Conventions, known as Common Article Three. It prohibits cruel and inhumane treatment and requires that prisoners receive all the judicial guarantees which are recognized as indispensable by civilized people. The word civilized drew blank stares from baffled Bush administration staffers, who had to run to their dictionaries to see what it meant. The opinion in Hamdan is really historic, said Bill Goodman, the center's legal director. On the one hand, it tells the executive branch that it will not be free to act as it chooses, which means to act lawlessly. At the same time, it acknowledges, as part of American law, certain international minimums of decency, morality, and ethics, and those are encompassed in common Article Three. Ordinary Americans have been largely indifferent to the plight of the prisoners at Guantanamo, believing for the most part that they were terrorists and therefore deserving of whatever terrible things might be happening to them. I asked Mr. Goodman why Americans should care about the treatment of the detainees. 
He said, it's important for the American people to know that this has been done in their name so that they can disavow it, disclaim it. We have to hold ourselves up to a mirror. We have to see what we have done. And at that point, we have to say, oh my God, we can't do this anymore. But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give honesty. Welcome to the show, Victoria. You're going to play Who's Carl this time. Carl Castle will start us off by reenacting three quotes from the week's news. If you can correctly identify or explain two of them, you'll win our prize. Carl's voice in your home answering machine. Awesome. Ready to go? Absolutely. All right. Here is your first quote. Let's face facts. Most of us know what we know about the Geneva Conventions from watching Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> that was the website Polyblog commenting on a big issue in the news this week, whether the Geneva Conventions will be applied to whom? Um, the prisoners. Exactly right. The yes. prisoners yes. in the war on terror at Gitmo, for example. Right. The Pentagon announced that, okay, fine, the detainees at Guantanamo Bay would be treated according to the Geneva Conventions, but then Pentagon lawyers just the next day went before Congress and argued two things simultaneously. First, that they've always applied the Geneva Conventions anyway. And second, they should be allowed to go back to not applying them. (laughs) (laughs) The best summary of the Bush administration position came from Acting Deputy Attorney General Stephen Bradbury, who while testifying to Congress said, and I quote him, the president is always right. Mm. Unquote. (laughs) He said that, although he did say, when pressed about it the next day, that he was, in fact, joking. See? You never know. See? It's true. The the person is absolutely right uh, about uh, Hogan's Heroes. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only other place I've ever heard it mentioned. Really? And I wouldn't have the slightest idea what are the provisions of the Geneva Conventions, except for, I believe, LeBeau is allowed to cook. (laughs) (laughs) And and Hogan is allowed to wear his hat at a rakish angle. Yes, and Schultz can't come in unannounced, I think. (laughs) I did did envision, when when we came across this quote, I did envision Sergeant Schultz testifying on behalf of the administration. (laughs) So have you been applying... Did you even have you been? You know, I know nothing, I'm not Senator. Not. <laughs> nothing. All right. Very good. Here is your next quote. I think your vice president's expression there is like his bad shot on his hunting trip. Ooh, that was a world leader responding to some critical comments from Vice President Cheney, who has signaled his intentions to shoot back at any criticism he might receive. Well. I don't know. It sounded like someone from Russia with the accent. Oh, Carl, oh, you did it! <laughs> wow. Whoa! Nailed it. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. You were like, oh, it sounds like somebody from, I'm like, where's this going to land? <laughs> but Carl, you nailed it. Yes, it's somebody from Russia. It's a world leader from Russia. 
Is it Vladimir Putin? It is. Very <laughs> wow. Good. At least you didn't think our president's belly was like a kitten. Or... That's well, yes. <laughs> that happened too. Now, the man whose soul President Bush once looked into and approved of is back in the news this week as the G8 nations prepare to meet. In an interview with the Today Show, Putin responded to the vice president's criticisms of his anti-democratic ways by trying to induce another cardiac event. <laughs> Putin also made news, as you said, by approaching a small child in Red Square lifting up the boy's shirt, putting up his lips to the boy's belly and going... <laughs> his explanation of this odd act, quote, I felt the urge to squeeze him like a kitten. The real reason, though, was that he was low on potassium and wanted to eat the child's spleen. <laughs> had to file a lawsuit this week in hopes of forcing Democratic leadership and, yeah, maybe even mainstream media to begin steps to save democracy. If you really believe that the U.S. has a system of legitimate voting that's in any way superior to third world countries or banana republics, you just haven't followed the voting scandal stories that have been surfacing since George Bush was appointed president. We all hear the facts, but for most of us, it's just so painful to believe that we sometimes simply dismiss the stories as politically motivated or incomplete or unverified. I got to tell you, that's not the case. Most Americans find it difficult to believe that after 200 years of democracy, that it would ever be possible for the act of voting to become as meaningless in the U.S. as it is in Mexico or Iraq. And I guess we believe that because we don't have soldiers with M-16s standing guard at our polling districts to make sure that everything's working just fine. At least we don't have that yet. Republicans aren't stealing elections with M-16s yet because they don't have to. Elections at virtually every level from local to national are being gamed in ways that are so sophisticated that lazy media and indolent Democratic leadership are hopeless to figure out what to do. And just to understand how serious this is, here's a few facts you've probably already heard about, but maybe you didn't believe them, but they're true. In Ohio alone, more than 80,000 times, voters specifically registered their vote for John Kerry, but more than 80,000 times, those same votes that were cast for Kerry were mysteriously registered as Bush votes in the end. This isn't a fact that's tough to understand. A computer switched the vote. There's no surprises here. In Ohio, where the entire election was decided by 119,000 votes, one in every four voters who were pre-registered showed up at the polls and discovered that they weren't even listed on the voting rolls at all. That was not a mistake. 
No coincidence, I guess, that the overwhelming majority of these people prevented from voting were Democrats and independents. But the Democrats, rather than fighting it, caved in early and refused to aggressively investigate that statewide scam, even though that third world caliber scam was put into place by Ken Blackwell. The 10,000-foot picture of Ken Blackwell is that he's a bottom-feeding Republican political hack. He's no different than Catherine Harris, who was Secretary of State in Florida. Blackwell swore his aggressive allegiance to Little Bush two years before that 2004 election day. Oh, yeah, and then there's this last special election for House of Representatives in California. Poll workers actually took their nifty computer voting machines home for as long as two weeks before the election. And, yes, the computer voting machines those poll workers took home before the election were the exact same kind of machines that a dozen nationally recognized computer experts have said were a hacker's dream. In fact, some of the most credible experts in the world have said that the computer card that's used in the machine can be manipulated to commit voter fraud so easily that's barely a challenge for a high school hacker all without evidence of tampering in that special congressional election in california though the democratic national committee advised the losing democrat not to investigate not to challenge at all what was happening because they were afraid democrats would look like whiners as if they don't already look like whiners and of course most of us have heard the story about the ohio county where there were only 800 registered voters in a polling district but that didn't prevent george bush from getting 4,000 votes in that same place where there were only 800 registered votes. Was it a coincidence that it was a heavily Republican district? I don't think so. So the end to the story is that if you're counting on the DNC to save democracy, don't. Because these are helpless whiners and they've morphed into spineless creatures that slide around like pathetic jellyfish from issue to issue with never enough backbone to take a stand. And the media... Well, you know the story about the media. But for those of you out there who do realize what's at stake, cross your fingers, say a little prayer, and realize that organizations like BlackBoxVoting.org, VerifiedVoting.org, Brad Blog, and the Voting Integrity Project are in a last-ditch, goal-line stand. And if they fail, democracy fails. The truth is that the U.S. at one time had a democracy that was the envy of the world. But that's when we could believe that our vote was actually counted. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. Alan Van Capel, the executive director of the Empire State Pride Agenda, the gay and lesbian advocacy group, which is spearheading the push for legislation 
to allow gay marriage in New York State. I was just stunned, Alan, by the rationale of this decision. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, I was watching the debates on television. This is when Clinton was president, and they were debating whether or not gay people could join the military. And, of course, they ended up with the don't ask, don't tell policies. But I was looking at these generals and the other advocates who were saying, you know, that, that this is going to reduce the effectiveness of our fighting force if we allow gays into the military. And as I was listening to them, I was substituting blacks, you know, for when they were saying that, because mm -hmm. this is, these were the same guys who were arguing in the 1940s and 50s that we shouldn't let blacks into the fighting units. And of course, up until Truman became president, black soldiers were largely not allowed to fight in the U.S. military. And prejudice and, and bigotry is bigotry. And here, if you, if you do the same thing that I did back then, you see how absurd this decision is and how motivated by just bigotry and hatred. One of the things that Judge Robert Smith said, he argued that children are better off raised by a biological mother and father rather than by a gay and lesbian couple. When I grew up in the state of Virginia, it was illegal for a black man to marry a white woman or vice versa. And the same kind of arguments were made then, and they weren't right then, and they're not right now. Judge Kay, on the other hand, argued that this is a fundamental right. And if it's a fundamental right, the state doesn't have the right to tell you who you can marry. Look, you know, I completely agree with you. The decision read like it was written in 1906, and it didn't sound like something that should have been written in 2006. And I think it's a really vivid reminder that no matter how far we've come, you know, gay people have never been given anything for free. You know, every right that we've won in the state of New York, whether it was a non-discrimination bill that made it illegal to fire us from our jobs, toss us out of our homes, or deny us credit because we were gay or lesbian, or hate crimes legislation, or the action that made New York State treat gay and lesbian surviving partners of September 11th equal to all other families. Everything we've been given, we've had to fight very hard for. And I think this is another example that, you know, we're not going to be given marriage in New York, it's going to take a lot more fighting on our part in order to win it. And, you know, it's also important to remember when the ban on interracial marriage was done away with in Loving versus Virginia in the late 1960s, 72% of the country thought that that was the wrong thing to do. And now I think people who would have written editorials against that court decision would look embarrassed today. And I think five years from now, people will look at Judith Kaye's position in terms of her dissent and say she was actually correct in her dissent, and she was right by saying that this is an unfortunate misstep for New York. Well, listen to the intellectual acrobatics of Judge Smith. He says, I'm reading from the decision now, he says, heterosexual intercourse has a natural tendency to lead to the birth of children. Homosexual intercourse does not. Despite advances in science, it remains true that the vast majority of children are born as the result of sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Okay, well, we know that. He says, the legislature could also find that such relationships are all often too casual or temporary. He's talking about heterosexual relationships now. So not a homosexual, because homosexual relationships have always been accused of being, you know, casual and temporary. But he says heterosexual relationships are casual and temporary. And the legislature could find that an important function of marriage is to create more stability and permanence in those relationships because there are children more likely to be born through impulsive behavior. 
it thus could choose to offer an inducement in the form of marriage and its attendant benefits to opposite-sex couples who make a solemn long-term commitment to each other. So what it's saying is that heterosexuals are so irresponsible that they have unplanned children. Right. They not need a... the institution of marriage to protect them from their own irresponsibility, but gays and lesbians who are in loving, committed <laughs> relationships, raising children, as one in four gay couples in New York are, they, who really need the protections, because they're without 500 different state protections that come with the marriage license, we can't get them because we've acted responsibly. It is mind-blowingly naive, the decision, and it's offensive to every gay or lesbian person in the state of New York that this was written by a member of our highest court. Yeah, I mean, the next generation is going to recognize that this was just the result of a narrow-minded bigotry that is no difference than the bigotry towards black in the 60s. There is absolutely no difference that this is as hateful and reprehensible as the kind of decisions that were made by Southern judges back in the 60s to justify Jim Crow apartheid and the violation of fundamental rights against a minority. And, and, and here's the other issue, is that they're sorely out of step with where the majority of New Yorkers feel on this issue. Fifty-three percent of New Yorkers, according to the only statewide poll on this issue, which, which the Pride Agenda conducted earlier this spring, showed that 53 percent of New Yorkers were in favor of marriage equality. Only 38 percent of New Yorkers were opposed to it. And a far majority of New Yorkers believed that they would think twice about voting for a legislator that discriminated against gay families by not allowing them to marry. This court is really out of step with where the majority of New Yorkers are. And over the last year and a half, the Pride Agenda has organized over 600 religious leaders and 385 congregations across 28 different religious denominations who are supporting marriage equality for same-sex couples. A week before the decision came out, the Buffalo Labor Federation, the Central New York Labor Federation, and the Capital District Labor Federation joined with Bruce Rayner, the president of Unite HERE, Randy Weingarten, the president of the Teachers Union, and Dennis Rivera, the president of the powerful 1199 Healthcare Workers East SEIU Union, to support marriage equality. If the Teamsters on Long Island can recognize marriage equality, certainly our courts can and Albany can. Well, you're right. And these people are reprehensible. George Pataki, George Bush, and Judge Smith. Uh, this is bigotry. This is hatefulness. It has no place in our society. It certainly doesn't have any place in our law. And the people who are propagating this kind of bigotry should be pariahs in our society. The decision was so homophobic that it has energized a community the likes that I've never seen before since I've been doing queer activism. The other thing that I know is that the most important thing someone who supports marriage equality could do between now and November is make sure that Elliot Spitzer gets elected governor. And the reason why I say this is because Elliot Spitzer, if he gets elected governor, will be the first governor in the country. This is going to be historic. He's going to be the first governor of the country to draft marriage equality legislation for same-sex couples, introduce it through the legislature, and use his political capital to get this done. You know, very rarely in our lives do we get an opportunity to see, you know, some measure of political courage. And the day of the decision, Elliot Spitzer went a step further by saying his office, if elected governor, would actually draft this legislation. And that's going to be a historic model for the rest of the country that I hope other governors will then follow. Remember, California doesn't have a Democratic governor. Massachusetts doesn't have a Democratic governor. Those 
governors have been obstacles to marriage equality in those states. New York has an opportunity to have a governor who's going to be supporting it. And that's what I'm going to be doing between now and November is making sure that come January 1st, we have somebody in Albany who's going to be looking out for my family and, and for the thousands of other gay and lesbian families across the country. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. Ah, but don't you believe that? Said, hey, little boy, you can't go where the others go. You know, if you're like me, you're pretty tired of listening to Democratic leadership moan and complain about how Democrats have lost the Deep South. Yeah, it is true that Mooney-eyed evangelicals, NASCAR dads, and stay-at-home soccer moms will never understand how badly they've put this country in jeopardy by consistently, predictably, and reliably swallowing the Republican bait like blind croaker fish every time the Republicans throw a new line in the water. But so what? Progressives absolutely do not need the Deep South to take back Congress, to take back the Senate, or to take back the White House. Progressives and Democratic leadership is just spending way too much time trying to lure Southern Walmart Republicans away from tractor pulls, Krispy Kreme donuts, and reality trash TV, and the unshakable grip of Pat Robertson-style political thinking. The answer is, let it go. Get over it. Elvis has left the building, but that's okay. I don't believe anybody explains the wisdom of that kind of political strategy better than Paul Waldman, who wrote a book entitled, Being Right is not enough. It's a book about political strategy that most Democratic leadership probably won't have enough sense to read. But if they did read it, you'd see how Paul makes a real common sense argument that maybe even Democratic leadership could get their mind around. Waldman says the obvious. Progressives in the South are outnumbered. Admit it. Get over it. Don't waste time and money trying to change it. 85% of the white vote in Mississippi went to George Bush, and that's pretty much right in line with what happened in all the other Deep South red states. Now understand, I'm talking about the 2004 election. That's after it was abundantly clear to that solid 85% white vote that their anointed good old boy leader had lied to them about Iraq, had outsourced their jobs, had giving them a measly $300 tax rebate at the same time that he gave his millionaire oil buddies $100,000 to $200,000 caliber tax breaks. It's after their good old boy leader had stifled their Walmart-level wages to a 2% increase over four years. Well, you get the picture. Voting in states like Mississippi, South Carolina, and Louisiana for white folks is not really a function of common sense. As they love to say down here, voting is a no-brainer. So Waldman has started 
preaching what most progressives in the South have known for a decade. Abandon the deep South. Save yourselves. Leave this small handful of progressives here behind to fend for ourselves. We'll be just fine. Go ahead and save the rest of this country. But please quit telling us that only a Southern Democrat can win for president. And for damn sure, quit dressing up Democrat buffoons like Joe Lieberman in a way that tries to pander to Pat Robertson Walmart Republicans in hopes that Democrats can turn the tide in the South by disguising what progressives stand for. It just doesn't work. The truth is the Deep South is simply returning to its own roots again to a time when an affluent, moneyed aristocracy kept poor white Southerners around as hired help to work their boundless plantations. A time when no matter how serious the wealth and class division was, no matter how completely the white Southerner was trapped under the foot of the South's elite aristocracy, that same Southern man was willing to charge into Civil War cannons and volleys of Union bullets to preserve that Southern aristocracy that, truth be told, could care less about him. So today, history repeats itself. Only today, Karl Rove Republican minions fill the shoes of that plantation aristocracy. And the best advice for Democrats comes from people like Paul Waldman, who have finally heard what progressives like me have believed for a decade. Democrats need to get over it. We've lost the South, and that's okay. Spend more time, more money, more effort where it matters. This handful of progressives down here, we're still going to fight the fight, and we'll close the door behind Behind you. And you know what? We'll keep a lamp burning. But right now, turn your attention to 45 other states and preserve what's left of democracy. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. hour, that's the word I'm looking for here, awkwardly, uh, on a call from John in West Virginia who was critical about sort of the idea that the liberals and people against the war are, uh, that that's somehow on the fringe and not part of mainstream America. All I can say about that, John, is I hear you. We will, we are all, I at least always try to be careful with the way I say things. It's tough because you don't want to shy away from using the word liberal, but you're right. A majority of Americans are against this war. Right now, a poll out today, Gallup poll, or excuse me, a CNN poll, which is no longer a Gallup poll, or maybe it is. No, I don't think it is. Somebody left, USA Today or CNN left Gallup. I'm not sure which one. Um, and uh, 53% of Americans still uh, favor a timeline for withdrawal. 
uh, that's still a majority. And it doesn't mean 47 don't. Some people are undecided. So, uh, But President Bush's numbers on handling of the war have gone up about five points since the last poll. That's since Zarqawi was killed, since he visited Iraq, since the uh, uh, two important ministers were named. And that's, of course, why the Republicans did what they're doing. What That's what John Boehner's uh, memo said to the other House Republicans. And that's why they have thought, hey, all of a sudden, after you know two and a half years of uh, essentially catastrophe in Iraq, you kill Zarqawi. And you name a couple of ministers, the president gets on a plane, visits Iraq, and all of a sudden, it's turned. And they're trying to turn a tiny bit of momentum uh, into sort of totally redefining uh, the manner in which we talk about this war. Here, here's this reframing. They've turned this small victories into totally reframing the way we talk about the Iraqi Civil War. <laughs> yeah. Just, we'll just say Civil War every civil time war. we say yeah, the yeah, that, war. That, It's not bad, actually. That's, no, it's not a bad thing at all. That's what you should be saying. Going back to, to what Ben was saying in response to uh, our caller from West Virginia, is is the I was at a dinner, actually, honoring that all three of us were honoring um, Ben's dad, and I was uh, lucky enough to sit next to George McGovern. And George oh, you McGovern, and your friend George. My friend George, yeah. Um, George Mack. Georgie Mack and I were sitting together. And, and he said to me, somebody was talking about, uh, kept using the word progressive, and he leaned over to me. At, as, right. he, as he often does, and uh, and he said uh, he said you Check know what? out the ass on that girl at the next table. <laughs> Man, I'd like to get a piece of that. And frankly, it was awkward to hear George yeah. McGovern talk that. Yeah, no, it was. He said, you know, uh, I, I think it was the voting machines that cost it for me. It's like George, <laughs> just give it up. It's been twenty five years. Uh, no, I, he uh, he said to me, he said people keep using this word progressive. We got to be proud to be liberals. I'm going to be a liberal till they bury me. And I was thinking, of course, George, they've already buried you. <laughs> but uh, but but no, you're right. It's a, you know, every time you hear the word progressive, you hear. I'm afraid to say liberal. Exactly. Every this, time. Right. It's 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 just saying a euphemism, yeah. and and it's awkward. So um, I mean, maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll sink in after a while. I, I sort of I, I'm dubious. Eight six six nine nine seven four seven four eight eight six six ninety nine serious. Kenny Baltimore, line three. Hey, Ken. Hey, what's up, y'all? How you doing? How are you, Kenny? Hey, I like y'all the debate, y'all. Fine, go. Uh, well, what you, I mean, first of all, be, it wouldn't be much of a debate. We all love Russ Michael. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, before I say that, I just want to say congratulations on the Republicans winning their uh, resolution yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I got a new resolution for them. Okay. Oh. Uh, which way is they going to vote if we put a resolution up that say, Whose side is the troops going to choose when the Sea Heights and the Stony go out to all civil war? Which side are we going to be on? Maybe they can figure that one out, too. Right. Well, that's uh, that's obviously a decision that I don't even think most uh, people in the Republican leadership, and that includes the administration. That's not a, that's not even a thing that they're uh, that they debate considerably. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the president understands the difference still to this day. Obviously, I think the difference has sunk in on people like Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. Yeah. So on fine go now. Yeah. You gotta remember now it's it's, it's a long way to the 2008 election. That's exactly right. right. Yeah. No, I. And now, yeah, I hear you. You're right. It is, and and that, uh, I I think to, to totally dismiss Russ Feingold is uh, that would would just simply be foolish. I don't think we've done that. I, I don't think we've done I, it either. He's going to be a viable and serious candidate for president. The theory that he is just why he's electable. I'm going to tell you exactly why. Okay. They elected goddamn Bush for eight years. You telling me they can't elect Flango? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's uh, there's some truth to that. Uh, Russ Feingold is going to have a lot. Uh, realistically, though, Kenny, Russ Feingold's had a lot of trouble raising serious money, so he would be running sort of an insurgent campaign, uh, mainly with support from progressives. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why that that's going to change too. 
But let me also say something else, that if Russ Feingold was successful, let's say Hillary doesn't run or runs and hits stumbling blocks that are at this point unforeseen, but we, she could. But quite possible. Could I mean, quite possible. Yeah. Happens all the time. Well, Hillary is derailed somehow or actually just doesn't run. Which is also possible, although seems unlikely. But so then, uh, you know, suppose Russ Feingold is able to tap into the sort of network, and and not so much that it's an actual network, but is to tap into that same vibe that Howard Dean did. That's possible. And and then if he doesn't seem as sort of, and forget the scream because I'm not even talking about that. Howard Dean's problems came before he screamed by losing. Uh, that sort of and and what apparently in hindsight turned out to be some serious disorganization in in Iowa that uh, that nobody saw ahead of time. But if Feingold were better organized and appealed to people more than Howard Dean, just as a guy, which Howard Dean clearly lacked to some extent, right. then all of a sudden Russ Feingold could well win the nomination. It's not outrageous. Yeah. I think so. It's also he, it, there's a seriousness about Russ Feingold right. which Howard Dean didn't have. There there is something sort of you know there was something a little loony about Howard Dean from the very first time you heard him talk and and. Not not that he's not a serious guy and a and a substantive guy. It's all about perception. But unquestionably, though, Kenny Russ Feingold has to change some of the perception about him if he's going to emerge as the kind of candidate that 60 million Americans. Ah, uh, I but, think you say the same. But, but we've been complaining how we don't but, have nobody but, in the Democratic Party that's willing to fight, willing to stand up. And Russ Feingold has been a leader. That's right. That, Nobody has been supporting him. That's 100% right. He's been there on every fight that that we've been complaining the Democrats yeah. haven't been fighting on. And he's been doing it alone a lot of the time. One of the things that Russ Feingold has, Kenny, is that he has a built-in segment of the electorate, which none of the other candidates. So if you if you take Hillary as the standard bearer in terms of 08 for the moment, uh, and then you look at the others, there's nothing that sets any of them apart, uh, assuming Al Gore doesn't run. If Al Gore doesn't run, that changes the if equation. Al Gore does run. If Al, Al Gore does run, that changes the equation. But but the Joe Bidens and Evan Bies and John Kerry's and John Edwards, they all mix into one candidate. And then Joe and then Russ Feingold is out there on his own with a substantive part, with a substantial part of, of the who party. Will, who will, who will back him. Yeah. But also, Kenny, I, I, when I, and, and I, I, I feel like, I mean, clearly because people, callers and emailers keep misinterpreting what I'm saying. When I say he has to change some of the perception that some people have about him, I don't mean he has to change. I mean he has to change that perception. He has to be seen as a as what he is, a strong, tough guy by a large segment that thinks he represents a fringe of the party. He doesn't represent a crazy fringe of the party. That is a perception that he has to change. You don't change that by not being yourself. But Ben, how does he change who he is? <laughs> So anyway, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it is a difficult road to hoe for Russ Feingold. That's all. That, that is essentially all we're saying. I believe it's you know a road. Who's going to help Russ Feingold? Huh? You know who's going to help Russ Feingold? Who's that? Bush. By just by being George Bush, by the fact that we just like... by James being George Bush, he's going to help Russ Feingold. I'm going to tell you how. Because the Iraq War and Bush is like trying to put two negative magnets against each other. It's never going to work. Well, there's and the longer he go on, and if, even if the Democrats gain power in in '06 election year, and they start getting these hearings on the way, and we start finding out everything that's been going on, that that uh, when Feingold stand up the center push, it's going to look like the power play of the week. It's going to look like Miami against Dallas overnight. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, uh, Kenny, I hear you. And the country has come a long way when a black guy from Baltimore is pulling for a Jew from Wisconsin. I think. That's- <laughs> 
It says a lot about America. Thank you very much, Ken. We appreciate the call. Everything just divides along racial lines, Steve. All you care about is race. Um, that is all I care about, actually. Yes, that's true. That's all I care. That's why I picked you. God, I've married a racist. You were yeah. the best black girl I ever met. <laughs> I'm glad you said black because it would have been like saying progressive if you'd said African American. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, obvious. she, it would have been she only recently taught me to stop saying colored. Really? Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I, I thought that today's show would be a, a good one in which to uh, talk about the music that I use. You know, maybe the country threw you for a bit of a loop. But I just wanted to say that everything that I use on the show is actually my own music, and I actually like all of it, just in case you're curious. And um, I, I totally forget to mention this all the time, and I, I should say it every time because... P- you know, people don't write in a whole lot about the actual content of the show. They just write in about what was that song you played that one time, and which I love because, I mean, the, the music, that's like the only thing I contribute to the show. And so when people are, are interested in the music I use, I love it. But um, if you actually go to the website, bestoftheleftpodcast.com, you can find in the show notes of every show, uh, all the recent shows anyways, the uh, the music is actually listed there. So what you would do is you go down from the in the homepage, find the blog, click the listen button. It's a little misleading. Click the listen button on whatever show you're interested in, and then right there in the show notes, it has the listing of artist and song title, and then links to iTunes where you can uh, you can find the song to uh, you, you know stream 30 seconds of it or buy it or you know whatever you want to do. So um, I just thought I would remind you guys of that little feature since I started doing that. That was that was one of the big requests that I had a while ago, so I do that now. And the other thing I forget to do all the time, which I should do every day, is give you the email address. If you want to email, it's direct at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com or there are some links on the website that'll that'll get you right there just so you don't misspell it or whatever and that's that's how i always do it anyways go to the website so there we go uh, next week i'm predicting great shows it's i have n- no idea what they sound like yet i have no idea what the clips are but uh i'm predicting they're going to be good and I, I thought this was a funny funny note i got uh in in an email a couple of weeks ago a guy said that when i talk about upcoming shows and I say that they're going to be great or that this particular one is the best or this, you know, that one was the best, that that's my ego talking. And I thought that was really funny as if he didn't realize that I, you know, I don't provide the content for the show. (laughs) It's when I say that a show is great, it's because of all of the clips I'm using and the clips are great because of the people who make them. I just steal them. So, anyways, I, I don't know, ego, but whatever. I try to put them together nicely, but I, I certainly, uh, I certainly don't take credit for for what the people are saying. They're, they're the real talent of the show. So until next week or next time or whenever you hear from me again, have a good one, everybody.
Hi, this is Twilight from the Twilight and Deep Show, and I'm a proud member of the Progressive Podcast Network. Visit and learn more at newmediarevolution.org.